What do you think of when you think of God's judgment? Do you think of something scary, something that's offensive to modern people, um, something that you hope someone who's not a Christian wouldn't ask you about? Or do you think of something that is good, something that God has given that can orient our life in the right way, that can lift burdens off our shoulders, that can give us perspective about who God is and who we are? Um, Psalm 7, I, I hope that by studying this psalm, you'll see that God's judgment is something good that he works in the world, something that Christians should hold on to and rejoice in. And and th- this psalm is a really interesting one. It reminds me of the book of Job in some ways, right? Because the, the psalmist is asking why God doesn't act against evil. And he uses some really interesting language here. So we're going to just jump into it. Th- this psalm was later, I should say first, this psalm was, was later associated with the Feast of Purim, which is related to the book of Esther, and um, if you don't remember the details of that, in the book of Esther, Esther, the, the, the queen, is in danger. Her people, the Jews, are in danger of being exterminated by the evil Haman. But God reverses that situation, and he actually brings Haman's own plots, which are to wipe out the Jews, back on him. So we'll mention that later on. And of course, you can always listen to our Daily Gospel episode on the book of Esther to get some context to that book. It's an amazing book. But let's get into the text here. So the heading says, A Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So Shagayan is a musical term. It might relate to the word for lament. There's some, some who argue that, which would make sense because this is definitely a lament psalm. But the important thing here is really the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. What is this referring to? Well, we don't have a reference to Cush in the rest of, of the, the story of David. So what is it? It may Some people think it may relate to David's conflicts with the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was the tribe of Saul, who was king before him. And so even after David took over, there was some conflict. Um there's, there's an instance in 2 Samuel 16, 5, where Shimei, who's a Benjaminite, as, as David is leaving the city of, of uh, Jerusalem and going and hiding when his son Absalom takes over, Shimei, this man, curses David and says these words against him. And David does not act against him at that time. So it seems to indicate that there were some false accusations made against him, right? The words of this person. So someone was accusing him of something that he didn't do. So that kind of sets up for the rest of the psalm. So the first section is verses 1 through 9, where we see the psalmist pleads his case. The psalmist pleads his case. So the psalmist here is pointing to the fact that he is innocent. Now, we may, be, we may say, well, no one's innocent of sin, right? And that's, that's true in an absolute sense. We are all flawed, and sin has corrupted every part of who we are. But in this psalm and in these instances, I don't think he's saying he's innocent absolutely of all sin. He's saying he's innocent of the sin that he's accused of. So it's possible for someone to be innocent in the court of law, but not to be innocent fully in God's eyes, right? So he's talking about this specific situation. So look at how he starts. He says, verse 1, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So we see he's immediately saying, I'm taking refuge in the Lord. I'm taking refuge in God. And that theme of taking refuge in God is so prominent in the Psalms. We're going to see it again and again, and that theme will build. Now, it reminds us, reminds me of Psalm 2.12, right, where it says, Blessed are all who take refuge 
in the Son, the Son who's introduced in Psalm 2. So it's good to take refuge in God. It's good to take refuge in his Messiah. And so that's what David here is doing. He's taking refuge in God who can protect it. In verse 2, he says, Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it to pieces with none to deliver. So I don't think he's talking here about physical danger, but about these false accusations that are leveled against him. There's a real danger to false accusations in the sense that they can destroy a person's soul. In a real way, words can be more dangerous than weapons. Weapons can harm the body, but words can destroy reputations. They can discourage hearts. They can end friendships. They can even damage a person's soul. And so David doesn't want to let these lies stand against him. He doesn't want to be discouraged because of this. And this lion metaphor is a powerful one, right? It's, it, it, the, imagine being attacked by a savage animal without any defense. That's how David feels here. And so he's arming himself through his prayer to defend himself against these accusations. In verses 3 through 5, he, he does a second thing, which he declares his innocence. So he's first said that he's taking refuge in God, and then he's saying that he is innocent. And he does he declares his innocence through this self-imprecatory oath, so to speak. So he says, basically, you know, he's wishing harm on himself if he's guilty. So he says, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, so that three repeated ifs, he's saying, I didn't do these things, but if I did, then harm should come upon me, right? He's calling God to bring harm upon him if he is guilty of these things. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you might have said, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a thousand needles in my eye. I don't know if that was a thing everywhere, but that's what my, me and my friend said. And the idea was, I'm telling the truth, and if I'm not, I hope that I suffer harm because of, because of lying. And so he's, he's confident that he's innocent, and he's praying that God would, would protect him from those who are harming him spiritually and physically. So verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. So he gives these four imperatives that are directed at God. Arise, lift, awake, and declare is the last one. You can't see this in the ESV. He said, it says you have appointed a judgment. That's actually a, uh, a, an imperative or a command. Now, he's not telling God what to do, but he's using these imperatives to, to call God, to invoke God, to act on his behalf. And by the way, when he says to God, awake for me, he's not saying that God is asleep. Okay, the Psalms and the whole scripture are clear that God does not sleep. He does not have weakness. He doesn't need to sleep. So for example, Psalm 121.4 says, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So he's not saying that God is asleep, but he's using this metaphorically to say, God, come and act on my behalf. Intervene. Do something. I want you to act. He wants God to act in his anger. And I don't know if you ever pray this, if you ever ask God to act in his anger, but maybe you should because it's here in Scripture. right? God, act in your anger. Do something. Arise in your anger and act on my behalf. We forget sometimes that God's anger is actually a positive thing, that um, that wrath is not an attribute of God in a proper sense, right? It's not an aspect of who God is, but it's the natural outgrowth of his consistent, unchanging characteristics. So because God is loving, because God cares for his people and wants to protect 
and do good to his people, he naturally has to be angry against those who want to destroy his people. And he has to be angry even against us when we sin, right? That's a natural thing because of God's holiness and because of his love. So the psalmist is asking here for God to act in anger against these people who are trying to tear him down through these false accusations. So the fact that God can judge, the psalmist understands that this is actually a comfort because it means that God can make uh, can can figure out this complicated mess of life. He can sort it all out. He can he can figure out who's deserving of forgiveness or a vindication and who's deserving of judgment. God is able to do that. In fact, in verse 7 there's a depiction here of the courtroom of God. There's an assembly gathering so God can render judgment. And so, you know, we often focus on the negative aspects of judgment. I think that's just a natural thing because of the age that we live in. That's our bent as modern people is to see God's anger or his wrath as a bad thing. But the biblical writers so often long for God's judgment. They want him to act in a way. They want God to right the wrongs of this life. So maybe your view of judgment needs to be reoriented by Scripture. Maybe you need to see, by you know, bowing your mind and your will and your emotions, you can accurately see what God says about himself and about his judgment and about how this is a good thing for those who love and are faithful to God. In verse 8, he again declares that he is righteous. Right? He calls upon God because of his righteousness, because of his integrity. So he's in the courtroom, and he wants to be vindicated of these false accusations. And then look at verse 9. He says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. There's a lot of echoes of Psalm 1 in this verse, right? Remember, Psalm 1 was that incredibly foundational psalm for the entire book of Psalms. But this, the end of the wicked he's talking about here reminds us of Psalm 1, 4 through 5, where we see that the, ch- that the wicked are like chaff. They, they don't have any stability. They don't have any permanence. They're just going to be blown away. And the establishing of the righteous reminds us of Psalm 1, 3, where we saw that the righteous were like a tree planted by streams of water. They're firmly fixed and bearing fruit in their season. So established here in this verse means to have an unshakable foundation. It means to not be able to be moved. So it's amazing here that there will be a time when the ways of the wicked will end, when the evil of of wicked people will be gone forever. It's amazing that God is able to test hearts at the deepest level, that he can see inside of us, he can know us, and he can vindicate those who uh, who have been faithful to him. So that's the first section we see that his pleading for his own his own case, his own innocence. And then in verses 10 to 17, we see the righteous judgment of God. So obviously there's one big theme in this psalm, and that's the judgment of God. But first he's saying, vindicate me, protect me. And then he focuses on God himself. He says in verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright of heart. He, he reaffirms that God is his protection, his shield. And then he goes on in verse 11, he says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The idea here is that there are reasons every day for God to be indignant. Now, there's a lot of, if you're, if you're into theology at all, you know there's a lot of conversation, debate about whether God has feelings. I would say that, it, that, that the idea is, you know, the term is that God is impassable, meaning he doesn't have um, emotions or human emotions. 
And I think that that's right. Maybe we'll do a separate video sometime on it. Does God have emotions? Generally speaking, I think what we should say is that when the Bible speaks of emotions, it's not speaking of emotions in the way that we have them. It's not speaking of emotions in the human sense that they can flare up, they can come and go. And this verse actually reinforces that. He's saying that there are injustices in this world and God is not passive in his response to them. In fact, his response is constant. He has this indignation towards sin every day. It doesn't ebb and flow. It doesn't come and go. It's always there. He's always um, judging and acting against evil. He sees it, he knows it, and it bothers him, and he's going to fix it someday. So he's going to pass sentence. That's really another way that you could you could um, render that phrase, feeling indignation, that he's passing sentence every day. God sees what's wrong, and he will act to fix it. What a comfort that is. So then there's a threat if you don't repent in verses 12 and 13, right? That God has a sword, he has a bent bow, he has weapons ready to go against the person who will not repent. So there's a there's an encouragement here, that's a threat obviously, but there's an encouragement of if you do repent, God's not going to act in this way. God invites us to repent, to turn from our sin, but... If you don't, there is a certain judgment that is coming. That you have a bent bow is like a, a, a loaded and cocked gun, right? I, I think when I think of bent bow, I think of like the scenes from Lord of the Rings, which I know is like 20 years old now, super old, I guess, but, but where they're all bending their bows ready to fire. That's the idea is that he's, he's ready, he's able to act, and he will act in judgment and destruction. And then he uses this strange metaphor. I think this is such an important point in verses 14 um, and following. He says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. So there's this building of the verbs, right? Conceive, pregnant, gives birth. It's very obvious what's happening here, right? So, of course, it's a metaphor, but he's saying there's a conception, there's a pregnancy, and then that comes to full term, and this person gives birth. But he's not talking about he's not talking about you know normal having a child. He's talking about evil here. Now this is strange. You know, in English, conceives is an interesting term because conceive could refer to coming up with a thought or becoming pregnant, right? So it can mean both. And here that that parallel is interesting, right? Because the, the idea is, is something like the ideas grow, that wickedness grows, and it grows in a way that is beyond our control. So what starts with maybe a thought or a small action grows into mischief, and eventually it comes forth as lies, slander against David in this case. And so there's an inevitable progression to sin that is often beyond our control, just like a pregnancy would be beyond control. And so the metaphor, I think, is made to point to the reality that messing with evil is sort of like sexual activity. Sexual activity may just be for pleasure, it may seem like no big deal, but it can lead to something much, much bigger. It can lead to something that completely changes your life and introduces another life into the world. And in the same way, evil, we think that we can manage our sin, that we can just do a little bit of evil. But what we see here is that even if we want to keep our evil at a certain level, we can't confine it to a certain realm. We can't keep it under our control. That sin grows in a way that is often beyond our control, that will lead us into greater evil actions and thoughts 
and to worse places, and we will reap the, the consequences for that. So this metaphor, it's strange, but I think it's so helpful to see what sin is like. And then in verses 15 and 16, he shows that sin is actually a consequence in and of itself, that sin is self-destructive. Verses 15 and 16, he says, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. So one of the ways that God judges evil is through the natural and inevitable defeat of evil at its own hands. Evil will undo itself. Evil inherently tends toward destruction, and we'll see that in this life in some way, and we'll see it in the next life when evil is judged forever in hell. This reminds me actually of the story of Haman. So you may see why this was associated with the Feast of Purim and the the story of Esther, because Haman, um, his plan was to kill Mordecai the Jew, who is is, uh, Esther's cousin, His plan was to destroy him, and so he actually built a gallows, a very high gallows, and he had a plan, a dream of killing Mordecai, and he had a dream of exterminating God's enemies. But at the end of the story, it's actually his own own actions that lead to the destruction of all of his allies, and he is hung on the gallows that he built. Haman's actions lead to his own destruction. And so it's interesting that we see this example over and over in Scripture, that the evil of the wicked will lead to their own destruction. In fact, the greatest example of this is Satan himself, who takes advantage of this moment in history where he can have a vulnerable son of God to kill him, to put him on the cross. We know that that Satan, to some degree, is acting in the hearts of these wicked men, and yet in that action, he's actually crushing his own head, right? just like the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 was, was foretold, that he wounds the heel of, of Jesus, but in the process gets his own head crushed. And so Satan's greatest victory is also the moment of his defeat. So we see this again and again, that evil defeats itself. And then in verse 17, he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So he ends again with confidence. He ends with calling God righteous. This is the third time that God's been called righteous. And he reminds us that what's at stake when evil men act is the righteousness of God. It's the righteous character of God. And so he turns again to that and he speaks at the end as if his prayer has been answered. And I love this. I love the confidence that he he says here because he understands that the, the evil of wicked men will undo themselves, will destroy themselves, and that God is going to act on his behalf. So a couple of couple of practical thoughts here. One, again, persecution and suffering are normal things. From beginning to end of the Bible, righteous people are being persecuted and they have to endure suffering. This is a natural thing and so we should expect it and we shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. The second thing is, again, we've seen this a lot in the first few Psalms, but the righteous always have a firm foundation but the wicked are unstable. They're always in danger. They're always unstable. And so while in this life it may look like the opposite, it may look like the wicked are prospering and stable and the righteous are not, David helps us to see the big picture that the righteous will endure and the wicked will not. The third thing we can see from this is that God will destroy those who attack his bride. Because God's judgment is not a bad thing, it's a good thing, Right, to vindicate his own holiness and to protect 
his people, to act in love for those who have been hurt. God will protect his bride and he will destroy those who come against it. So we don't have to be too intimidated when we have governments or whatever obstacles we might have as God's church that are against us, that seem much more powerful. God will one day destroy them. And so we can continue to just do the work of the gospel work, right? We don't have to fight with our hands. We don't have to go against certain people in this life because God will protect his people in the end and in his timing. And then the next thing is that it's an incredible relief that God will judge between good and evil. It's an incredible relief that God sees all and will give us exactly what we, what we deserve. So don't miss out on the glory of judgment that we can look at the world and all the evil in it and we can say God will do what is right. Praise God for that truth. But of course, you know, maybe there's something incomplete here in saying that, well, judgment isn't all good because we know that if we're sinners, that we also are deserving of God's judgment, that we have offended his holiness, that we have again and again gone against God, rebelled against him. And so we have to remember the end of the story as well, that we have a hope as Christians that Jesus Christ has already faced God's judgment on our behalf, that he was the only truly, absolutely innocent sufferer and that he suffered for us so that we could be saved. So I hope this psalm doesn't just help us to rejoice in God's judgment, but also to rejoice that we've been delivered from what we deserved.